Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we deal with life, and it's an important thing to look after because life can be overwhelming. It's easy to become burned out, often without even knowing that you are. You know, that motivational lack that you may feel has crept up, or perhaps the constant tiredness you're feeling, or your irritability with everybody, it seems. They're just some of the signs of it. Now, we always associate burnout with work or working too hard, but that really isn't the only cause of it. Any of our roles in life can weigh heavily on us, and the relationships we each have in our lives take work, especially the most important one that you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. I've found personally that talking to a professional in the past has helped me in my own times of need. It's helped me to figure out exactly what it was that was causing me stress. And should you feel this is something that you may benefit from, then perhaps BetterHelp can help you. BetterHelp is customised online therapy that offers video, phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than any in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com TCE. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around I've reached into the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland to bring you some of the darkest tales of true crime that there is, be it the ones that may not be familiar, ones that are often unbelievable and haunting, but all that are very real indeed. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. Like a really shit Bond villain, I am as ever accompanied by Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat, and completing this unholiest of trinities, a you kind lot, the enthusiasts that make the show happen. It's as fabulous as it always is having you joining me in the mod today, which we thank you kindly for doing, and hope that as you are, then it finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. As I come to you today then, we're less than a month away from what has to be the most exciting event of the year. Never mind Pearl Jam in Hyde Park, which I'm absolutely gutted to have missed. Never mind Macca at Glastonbury. Never even mind Boris's resignation. Where it's really at is at the Phoenix in London's Cavendish Square on August the 11th when myself, Mike from Murder Mile, and Adam from the UK True Crime Podcast are once again putting our heads together and working out how to plan the perfect murder and totally balls it up. We had such a fab time doing it in Glasgow, we really did, and Glasgow has set a very high bar indeed, but which we of course want to race further. So if you folks can and you want to become a part of this... Some tickets are still available from the link that you'll find if you head to the episode show notes. Come and join us, we'll have a great time, and other venues and dates will be announced soon. Now, the latest Patreon episode is still coming within the parameters of this month too. I've not forgotten it or anything. I've just found that the recent heatwave has sapped my motivation somewhat. And as he doesn't sweat, yeah right... It's probably the only time in my life that I could say that I wish I was like Prince Andrew, and that's a sentence I never ever thought I'd say as well. But the episode is coming real soon, folks. 
A big thanks go out to both the returning Patreon supporters of the show, as well as a welcome shout-out to new friends Chris Lomas and Diane Crawford, plus Troy Tempest, Sam Collins and Lucy Hellicker, who have edited their pledges, and Barbara Dean and Flaming June, who have opted to annually support the show. Thank you so much, all. You're the best fans ever. Absolute redwoods amongst saplings. Now, if you want your very own shout-out here, perhaps even to be awaiting a swag bag coming from me, and I'm toying with the idea I might even start sending locks of the True Crime Enthusy cat's hair in with them as well, because there's certainly bloody enough of it knocking about my house, I can tell you. And certainly having the full series of bonus enthusiast tales to listen to, then it's a doddle to do, and you can be a Patreoner quicker than a Love Island couple changes the wastes of skin that they are. You just head over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there, or scratch all of that because there's a link that will take you right to it in the episode show notes. Faster than Liz Truss can retract a tweet, what absolute bellendo or eh? you can be hearing such tales as Wicked Beyond Belief, Disfigured, or The Final Straw, to name just a few, with, as I said before, the latest one coming in a couple of shakes. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've returned to a subject I've touched upon several times over the past few series, including twice in the last one, familicide. I was torn between two stories to bring. Though unconnected, each of them are equally horrific, and each, I thought, are the type of crimes that should be much more familiar than they are. Now when I say that, I know of course that the families and loved ones of those involved can and will never forget them. That goes without saying. But I mean more the wider public. For these are ghastly tales and names that should be remembered. Which is what I always strive to do here on The Enthusiast. So, when I'm torn between two tales, if I can do, and I've managed to do here, I decided to bring you both of them. We're off back to first the late 1990s and then the early 2000s for our tales, to Greater Manchester and then to Merseyside, to hear two cases of unbelievable horror and savagery, and each for the most pathetic of reasons. I tell each tale in as full depth as I can do here, not for sensationalism whatsoever, but as I've said many times before, because I want the listener to appreciate the full horror that I did when I was researching each case. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, involving children, involving injury detail, and involving a case of animal cruelty, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so discretion is advised when listening in or. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for a pair of tales that make up an episode I've entitled Not All Monsters and make-believe. It was shortly before 7.30am on the morning of Wednesday the 9th of September 1998 when Maria da Santos knocked on the door of the home that her sister, 30-year-old Celeste Bates, shared with her two children, 8-year-old Daniel and 17-month-old Milo, a four-bedroom end-of-terrace cottage on the A666 Blackburn Road in Edgerton in Greater Manchester, only to unusually receive no answer to her knocking, to notice that the curtains were still drawn, and the house to still be in complete darkness. 
as Celeste, who was the deputy manager of a Bolton nursing home, often worked early shifts. Maria would help out by dropping her nephews off to childminding services, Daniel to an out-of-school service, and Milo to a nursery, hence the reason that she was there that morning. It was so unlike Celeste not to be up and about that Maria began to panic, for only some months before, Celeste had had to have specialist locks fitted to the doors of the house after receiving attention from a stalker, a man who had several times attempted to gain entry to the house, a result of which police had been contacted and had attended the property several times. And so, almost without hesitation, Maria contacted police. By 7.50am, two uniformed officers had arrived at the property and had attempted unsuccessfully to force their way in through the front door, having no luck either around the back. However, 41-year-old joiner Graham White was at the time working on a nearby house renovation, and when he arrived there for work, and spotting the ladders attached to the roof of his van, one of the officers had borrowed one of these, and was shortly afterwards attempting to gain entry upstairs through the front bedroom window. Graham White described later, the policeman climbed up to an open window, he opened the curtains, looked in, and turned to his colleague and said, Call for an ambulance quick, she's dead. The officer then climbed in through the window. After the requested assistance was on its way, the officer indeed climbed into the property. But sadly, calling for an ambulance was merely to be a token gesture. For one glimpse of 30-year-old Celeste, found fully clothed and lying on her bed, was enough to show the officer that she was beyond help. She had been horrifically mutilated, her skull smashed in. A later post-mortem was to determine that she'd been struck at least four times over the head with a heavy, blunt instrument, but in an orgy of violence, she'd also been partially strangled and stabbed ten times, the weapon thought to have been a hunting-type knife with a serrated edged blade of 15 centimetres. Now it would be horrific enough to find that would be, I'm sure you'd agree. But there was much, much worse to come. Making his way through the upstairs of the property, the officer then found in their respective bedrooms, laid on each of their beds, the fully clothed bodies of 8-year-old Daniel and 17-month-old Milo. Both boys had had their skulls shattered almost beyond recognition, determined later to have been due to six furious blows each with a heavy, hard pickaxe handle. It was later found bloodstained downstairs. In Daniel's bedroom, the body of the children's hamster also lay dead on the carpet, determined later to have been killed from being plucked from its cage and thrown against the bedroom wall. Scarcely able to believe what he'd seen, for how could you even begin to comprehend such a sight? The officer made his way downstairs to allow his colleague access, noting as he reached the front door and then went into the lounge that several items of furniture in the property had been slashed and scoured. He also noticed a scrawled handwritten note addressed to Celeste's estranged husband, Ian Bates, which read, you're welcome to your family back. There are no words, are there? Horror beyond belief, that, isn't it? 
Within minutes, the peaceful village was flooded with police, and a major murder investigation had swung into action, spearheaded by Detective Superintendent Mick Gorrill. And as house-to-house inquiries began in the Edgerton area, Celeste's life was looked at to try and determine some sort of motive for such carnage, and more importantly, a suspect. Locals who knew her, meanwhile, each expressed their shock at such horror on the doorstep. The proprietor of the King William IV pub, across the road from where Celeste and her children had lived, Nigel Friedman, told the Bolton Evening News, Celeste came in very infrequently for lunch. Towards the end, she was coming in on her own. She had long jet black hair and she was a real head-turner. This is a real tragedy. Local butcher Paul Fairclough, meanwhile, said, I can't believe it. The dead lad was playing with my nephew just the day before. It's a terrible shock. The picture that was too rapidly emerged was of a happy, well-liked, highly attractive woman who turned heads wherever she went, a hard worker who had big plans for the future, but whose life revolved around her children, pictures of which she kept stuck to the dashboard of her car. She was well-liked by the staff and residents of the Aberfields Care Home in the whole area of, of Bolton, where she'd worked for several years and had risen to the position of deputy manager of. Indeed, so much did she love her job that she and Maria had even discussed in the future buying the home from its owners, and she owned the cottage where she and the children lived, having renovated it over the previous few years into a respectable and happy family home. But for someone who sounds to have absolutely everything going for her, through researching, there was one aspect of Celeste's life that she seemed to be less successful at, and that was with her luck with partners. As I said, a highly attractive woman who kept herself in fabulous shape through regular visits to the gym, coupled with her Brazilian-Portuguese heritage, raven-haired Celeste had had no shortage of male admirers over the years, though no relationship seemed to last. Before living in Edgerton, she'd previously lived in Duxbury Street in the Darwin district of Manchester, and where, in 1990, aged 22, she'd fallen pregnant with Daniel, though the relationship with his father was short-lived. She shortly afterwards began a relationship with a neighbour, a local painter and decorator named Paul Shuttleworth, who it has to be said, when spoken to by the Bolton Evening News, was somewhat less complimentary about Celeste saying, When I met her, she was perfect. She was stunning to look at, a real cracker, but it all turned sour. She started to rule my life. I lost my friends, and I ended up owing thousands of pounds. By the end, I was a complete nervous wreck. Paul described how he and Celeste were together for 18 months between 1992 and 1994, during which time he grew close to Daniel, saying, I treated that lad like one of my own. I paid his nursery fees, and he even started to call me daddy. However, Celeste was also seeing another man at the time, Ian Bates, who she later married, by all accounts meeting him through a dating agency. Paul Shuttleworth described her as running between two camps. That's when it got frightening. By the time she eventually left Darwin, I was a mess. She had totally manipulated me. She was just that sort of destructive person. I could write a book about what I went through with her. 
Now this did at least once result in court action, for there were reports that in July 1995, Ian Bates appeared in Burnley Crown Court, where he was fined and given community service after the court heard he'd armed himself with a baseball bat and a knife and had threatened to kill Paul Shuttleworth. Celeste and Ian Bates had then moved a few miles away to Edgerton, where they began doing up number 505 Blackburn Road there, making it into their family home. In 1996, Celeste had fallen pregnant with Milo, and they welcomed their son into the world in March of the following year. However, by the start of the next year, the couple had separated, and Ian had headed off abroad to work. Celeste and the children had moved away from the area briefly, before returning to Blackburn Road, as an unnamed neighbour of Celeste's told the Bolton Evening News. She had a chequered past and seemed to make bad decisions about men. She came back to stay for a while recently and told me she thought she'd made a terrible mistake with a man. Now, through researching, there were reports that after she split with Ian, Celeste launched herself into a succession of short-term relationships reportedly starting one with a Brazilian man and another launching into an affair with a married man who left his wife for her, though he was shortly to return to the family home. Both of these relationships were short-lived and it's unclear if it was one of these men who was the stalker responsible for Celeste changing the door locks on her home that police had been called for or whether this was another person altogether. The unnamed neighbour of Celeste added, Everyone knew Celeste was a very frightened woman. She'd been terrorised by a man who kept trying to kick her door down. He attempted to break in several times, and the police were called on several occasions. Now, the relationship with a married man had ended in December 1997, and it was the same month that Celeste had met a 34-year-old heating engineer named Peter Hall, who lived in Mossshore Way in the Radcliffe area of Manchester at a Christmas party at the Last Drop Hotel in Bromley Cross, and who was instantly smitten with her. Though he was well-liked, sociable and popular and ran his own heating installation business, Hall had lived alone with his two Rottweiler dogs since the breakdown of his marriage in 1986, though he'd had a string of casual girlfriends over the years. However, this all changed when he met Celeste, because he fell head over heels for her and pretty soon he would often be found staying over with Celeste and the boys at their home, playing happy families to the point where he would even drop the children off at school and at nursery. It was something that he had experience in after all, having two children himself from a previous relationship, a son and daughter then aged 15 and 11 respectively. However, friends of Hall's noticed, and even commented privately amongst themselves, that he had instantly put Celeste on a pedestal, and all too soon, his feelings concerning her had become clearly obsessive. Now, in cases such as this, the instant prime suspect is always someone very close to the victim, and such horrifying violence suggested someone with a very personal motive towards Celeste, so it wouldn't be a massive jump for officers to suspect, with Celeste's history of relationships, that it may have been a jealous lover responsible. And that would indeed be true, if they hadn't already had good reason to already have their prime suspect, 
one so strong that they made the unusual step of making his name public, for he was nowhere to be found. At a press conference later that Wednesday, Detective Superintendent Gorrell told the gathered media, I can confirm that they'd been subjected to a brutal attack. It is a grim and gruesome scene inside the house. Any scene where children are murdered is always very harrowing, and this was as gruesome as you could possibly meet. It's as grim as I've ever seen. We've not identified a weapon, but a blunt instrument appears to have been used. We do not know the motive. Asked to confirm local rumour that was already by that time circulating, concerning reports of a man bragging that he would be famous in the nearby pub, Detective Superintendent Gorrell neither confirmed or denied this, adding, I can confirm we are following an inquiry from the public house next door, but I'm not at liberty to say exactly what was said. He then took the unusual step of naming Peter Hall as the man police wished to trace in connection with the murders, giving a full description of Hall and giving details of the vehicle he was driving, Celeste's red Honda Civic, registration number P624NJA, which was missing from her home. He said that Hall did not live at the address and was not the father of either of the children, but he was last seen at the address on Blackburn Road on Tuesday afternoon and was probably one of the last to see the family alive. For Hall was indeed nowhere to be found. His house in Radcliffe was empty, though his car was there, and he hadn't been seen by anyone since the Tuesday evening when he'd been in the King William IV pub just across from Celeste's house and where he had told locals, according to local rumblings, just before he left at 11.20pm. You'll never forget me. You'll always remember me. I'll be famous tomorrow. Doesn't sound good, that, does it? I would appeal to anyone who knows Mr Hall or Mr Hall's whereabouts to urge him to contact us here or through any other police station, Superintendent Gorrell added. The following day, pictures of Peter Hall appeared in the local and national newspapers, with a nationwide appeal urging anyone who spotted him to report this sighting to police, as well as to Hall himself to come forward, and he was found sooner rather than later. At 2.10 on the morning of Thursday the 11th of September, locals living on remote Tottington Road near Hawkshaw, only some three miles from Blackburn Road, were awoken by the sound of a collision, and after making their way outside, discovered a red Honda Civic on its side in a compound storing gas cylinders. Having been catapulted across the rural road following colliding with a telegraph pole at high speed, near the junction of Tottington Road and Watling Street. Those who had rushed out following the sound of the crash discovered a cut and bruised man sitting on a nearby grass verge putting his shoes on, but who leapt to his feet and ran off as they went to help him. Realising that this was Peter Hall, residents immediately contacted police, and within minutes all roads and country lanes surrounding the area were sealed off, as a police helicopter which only hours before had made several sweeps over Radcliffe's Mosshore estate in a bid to locate the wanted man, was now scrambled to the area and hovered overhead, using its heat-seeking detection equipment as officers searched the fields and hedges. 
Hall was detained by two Berry police officers within 15 minutes, hiding less than half a mile from the scene of the accident. When restrained, he told officers, I'm Peter Hall, I think you're looking for me. I've really done it this time, haven't I? I shouldn't have done it. It's madness. Indeed, eh? Taken to Astley Bridge Police Station in Bolton, Hall admitted the three murders, but said in an interview that the killings were actually part of a murder-suicide pact, stating, We both planned it the day before, because we couldn't have the kids together. I was supposed to go as well, and I took 150 tablets and some beer, but woke up with a headache. I really loved her. She's the only woman I've ever really loved. However, later he refused to give blood tests in an attempt to substantiate this story. He then spent the following night in hospital under guard after he complained of having severe pains to his back and legs, but was discharged the following morning. On Monday the 14th of September 1998, 34-year-old Peter Christopher Hall appeared before Bolton Magistrates Court, charged with the murders of Celeste Bates and her two young children, 8-year-old Daniel and 17-month-old Milo. No application for bail was made and he was remanded in custody awaiting trial. More than 200 mourners attended Christchurch in Walmsley on Tuesday the 22nd of September, the same church where only months before Milo had been christened, to say a final goodbye to the mother and sons, as three hearses full of flowers arrived outside the church, containing the three coffins. Followed in by mourners including Celeste's husband Ian and her parents Joseph and Ethel Martins, Pallbearers carried in Celeste, the coffin bedecked by floral tributes, followed by soccer-loving Daniel, who had a football on top of his smaller casket. Milo's tiny coffin, meanwhile, topped by a teddy bear and flowers, was carried in by his Aunt Maria. Inside the picturesque Victorian church, sunlight shafted through the stained-glass windows as the three were placed on stools draped with purple and gold-trimmed cloth. A poem on Daniel's coffin read, The tears in my eyes I can wipe away, but the ache in my heart will always stay. Lots of love always, Grand Joan. Three candles burned brightly as the vicar of Christchurch, the Reverend David Briley, spoke of the three lives that had been cut cruelly and tragically short, describing Milo, who had defied doctors by surviving a difficult birth, as a gift from heaven. He said the tot was the sort of lad who won over hearts on first meeting, whilst Daniel, a pupil at Edgerton Primary School, was said to be a sensitive, intelligent and inquisitive little boy who loved to play football with his granddad or computer games with his stepdad Ian. As mourners, including Daniel's classmates, sobbed, the vicar added, he always wanted to know how everything worked and, with a head on him in advance of his years, he wanted to put the world to rights. He dreamed of being a doctor. Celeste, meanwhile, was described as attractive, essential, vibrant and in love with life, a loving parent who would always try to help others. The Reverend Briley said that the young mum would want folk to celebrate their lives rather than be filled with gloom, adding, 
always immaculate, always beautifully turned out, no matter what time of day you met her, she was nevertheless a genuine person, sincere with total integrity. She knew what the really important things in life were. All three were then interred together, side by side, in the same grave in the churchyard, watched over by an oak tree. As mourners including friends, neighbours, family, police and Aberfield residents filed back from the private burial, the floral tributes at the chapel entrance told of the community's grief. Several, including one with a Thomas the Tank Engine model and a model car, were from local shopkeepers, pub regulars, neighbours and the police inquiry team at Bolton Police Station, whilst one white and orange flowered tribute from Aberfield's care home carried two cards with it. An ode to Celeste on one read, A heart of gold still beating, two smiling eyes at rest. God broke our hearts to prove to us he only takes the best. We love you. God bless always. A tribute to Daniel and Milo on the other added, Two little flowers lent not given to bind on earth, but bloom in heaven. Milo's father and Daniel's stepfather, Ian Bates, was heard to say through his tears at the funeral, You never think you're going to have to choose a coffin for your children. And you never should either. I can't even begin to imagine it. I really can't. On Friday the 19th of March 1999, Peter Christopher Hall stood in the dock of Manchester Crown Court before presiding Mr Justice Forbes, where he pleaded guilty to the murders of Celeste Bates and her children Daniel and Milo. Ahead of sentencing, the shocked court was told the horrifying details of the actions of that Tuesday in September that Hall had admitted, and which go as follows. That Tuesday, Celeste had telephoned into work sick and she was to be Hall's first victim. Unsure of the order in which this happened, Celeste was beaten about the head with an ornamental iron at least four or five times, before being partially strangled, and finally stabbed ten times with a serrated edged hunting knife. A post-mortem examination later revealed that any of the blows could have killed her. Hall then redressed Celeste in clean clothes, had gone around and slashed and scoured several items of furniture, before then driving home to Radcliffe, where he washed himself and changed his clothing. He then left £470 on his kitchen table for a friend, with a note asking him to use it to look after his two dogs, before he hailed a taxi to take him back to Edgerton, telling the taxi driver ferrying him he was in, I quote, a right good mood. Arriving back at Blackburn Road, Hall, seemingly intent on destroying all that Celeste loved, then used Celeste's Honda Civic to collect her oldest son Daniel from Edgerton County Primary School, as he had done many times before. Once back at the house, he lured the youngster into his own bedroom, where he battered him to death with a pickaxe handle. He also killed the boy's hamster by throwing it against a wall. Hall had then washed and changed for a second time before setting off to collect Milo from his nursery, Highview Nursery, 
off Belmont Road in Sharples, where when he arrived, unconcerned staff handed Milo straight over to him. After all, because there was nothing unusual in Hall collecting the toddler. But, upon arriving home, Hall then battered Milo to death in his bedroom with the same weapon he'd used to kill his older brother. A post-mortem examination revealed both boys had died from multiple head injuries, being struck at least six times each. After washing once again, Hall then lay down next to Celeste's body for a couple of hours. Before that evening, he headed across to the King William IV pub, spending the evening drinking there, chatting with staff without showing any signs of strain. None of the locals there, who knew him as he'd become a semi-regular, noticed anything different about him that evening. He was his usual jovial self. He did leave the pub twice that evening, but each time he claimed he was taking Celeste some peanuts. He was, in fact, checking to see if the bodies had been discovered. Before he finally left the pub at 11.20pm, after last orders, he'd even boasted to the small group inside that they would soon be reading about his exploits in the Bolton Evening News. You'll never forget me. You'll always remember me. I'll be famous tomorrow, Hall had said. Now at the time they treated this boast with mild amusement, but it was only the next day, however, that the meaning behind his bizarre statement had become all too horrifyingly clear. And the reason for this bloodbath? Anthony G. QC, prosecuting, told the court. Hall was intensely jealous, and that jealousy appears to have been the motive. Indeed, Detectives believed that Peter Hall had bludgeoned, strangled and stabbed to death the woman he loved and had slaughtered her children, even their pet, because he feared he was going to lose her and she was going to return to her estranged husband. Oh yes, can you believe that? Defence counsel Peter Burkett QC told the court that from the onset of his relationship with Celeste, Hall had changed from an outgoing and sociable man into an introverted obsessive. He stressed in mitigation that Hall was found to have no mental or psychiatric disorder. He had accepted total responsibility and was so remorseful that he had even tried to take his own life after the killings to be with those whose lives he had destroyed. He is racked with remorse and that will haunt him for the rest of his life, said Mr Burkett. Passing down three life sentences to Hall, Mr Justice Forbes said, You've pleaded guilty to three counts of murder. On September the 8th, 1998, you brutally destroyed three innocent lives. None of your victims had done you the slightest harm. Two of them just children, the other their mother. Together, they formed a decent, happy, loving family unit. It was that family unit which fell victim to what appears to have been your jealous rage. No useful purpose would be served by repeating the details of the appalling and shocking violence with which you brought about their deaths. No words of mine can express adequately the full horror and revulsion which your dreadful and wicked crimes evoke. 
Following the verdict, Detective Superintendent Mick Gorrill revealed how the scene had had a devastating effect on everyone who saw it, saying, We all had a job to do, but it is something that will live with me forever. The word horrific does not adequately describe what happened on that day. It was evil in the extreme, a terrible crime. It has had a devastating effect on Celeste's family, and every member of the police team has great sympathy for them. Hall is a very dangerous man. If things do not go his way, he resorts to terrible violence. Our hearts must go out to the family, particularly the sister of Celeste, Ian Bates, and the grandparents. We believe it was jealousy. He believed the relationship was going to end. If he could not be with Celeste, then nobody else could. Celeste's husband, Ian Bates, said, meanwhile, I've not got any words at the moment. I don't know what to say, really. I feel a lot worse now, now I know the full circumstances. Celeste was hinting at a reconciliation before she went on a one-week holiday to Brazil, and all that time, I was thinking about us getting back together. She was a devoted mother who planned to make a life for herself with her kids. They didn't deserve to die like this. The man is a coward who should be in shackles and treated like an animal for the rest of his life. He'll be hoping that one day he will get out. That hope should be crushed, so his life is crushed as others were. I would not wish the death penalty on anyone, but I don't want him ever to be released. He should rot in hell. Ian later told the Lancashire Telegraph how he'd moved back into the house that he'd shared with Celeste and the children. And though the photographs of his family which used to adorn the walls were all stored away, the children's toys remained untouched in their rooms. He explained, Being here does not help me get over what has happened, but I have no intentions of moving, even though at the moment it is more painful to stay. Long term, if I moved out, it would remain more painful for the rest of my life. If I left the house, I would have nowhere to go with my memories other than their graves. Celeste and I took four years to get the house how we wanted it. We spent every weekend doing it up. If I left and sold it, the new owners would change it and everything we spent putting together would be gone. He went on. There is no escape. No matter where I go, it is something that will live with me forever. There's nowhere I can go to escape what happened. I found there have been different stages to the way I felt. There's been no healing, just coping. First, when I was told what had happened, I fell into shock. I did not really face up to the reality. After a few weeks, I found that I could be okay for a few hours, but then I would break down. Now, it's like a constant toothache. Less intense, but permanent. It's always there, and it never goes away. Describing the anger he felt towards Hall, Ian continued. He is an evil coward. His face is that of pure evil. He is a six foot three inch man who has murdered an eight year old, a 17 month old baby and a woman. I believe he killed them just out of spite because Celeste was going to leave him. Ian, however, was never to see Hall have his hopes of getting out crushed or his years shackled inside, because on Monday the 13th of December 1999, two months after being transferred to Wakefield Prison, Old Monster Mansion itself, 
and less than nine months into his life sentences, Peter Hall took his own life, hanging himself in his cell by using a homemade ligature from bedsheets and workman's overalls. Despite attempts at resuscitation, he was pronounced dead at the scene by a prison doctor. Following news of Hall's death, Celeste's mother, Ethel Santos Martins, told the Bolton Evening News, I'm glad he's dead, he deserved to die, but it won't bring my family back. Peter has ruined my family, I now have only one daughter left and no grandchildren. At an inquest held on the 30th of April 2001, a verdict of suicide was recorded after the inquest heard how Hall had become depressed during his relationship with Celeste and had attempted suicide previously. The Hall family solicitor, Ruth Bundy, told the inquest at Wakefield that Hall had tried to take his own life on three occasions, including crashing his car after the murders. The inquest also heard Hall had stopped sending letters or communicating with his son and daughter shortly after being told he would serve a minimum 22 years for the crimes. His family contacted the prison service to express their fears that he would kill himself, but were told he was not considered a suicide risk. Wakefield's prison medical officer, Dr Richard Evans, said Hall had been classed as a suicide risk whilst at Strangeways Prison on remand, but he had later been diagnosed as being calm and rational and transferred to Wakefield two months before he died. Wakefield Governor David Shaw told the inquest that prison staff had found no signs Hall intended to kill himself, and other inmates had said he appeared normal the night before his death. But within a week of being given his own cell, he'd taken his own life. Following his death, letters written by Hall were found in his cell addressed to his family. One read, this is not a coward's way out, just my way of putting an end to the problems I have caused. Hall's family refused to comment after the inquest, though a statement from his brother John was read out by West Yorkshire coroner David Hinchcliffe, which in part the statement read, Peter was, in my opinion, a sick, not an evil person, but to the best of my knowledge, he received no psychiatric care apart from a doctor who shared his cell, who was awaiting trial accused of murdering 15 of his female patients. Oh yes, Hall's cellmate, while he was remanded in Strangeways Prison, had for a time been none other than Dr Harold Shipman himself. Letters addressed to Dr Death were found in Hall's cell after his death. And Shipman is very probably the last person you would ever want counselling you for anything, isn't it? Now the Sue and Ellen in question here were Sylvia's sister, 29-year-old Susan Peters, and her three-year-old daughter Ellen, who lived largely alone in an upstairs flat at number 9 Dudley Road in the resort. Susan's 26-year-old husband Ian, Ellen's father, was a serving Royal Navy chef based at HMS Nelson, now part of Her Majesty's naval base in Portsmouth, and as a result wasn't home all that often. Nonetheless, Susan was part of a close-knit family who all rallied round to help her out with childcare and support when needed, and who could be described as nothing less than a devoted mother, 
Alan was her whole world. Sylvia continues describing how their brother Fred, a serving police officer, at 11.15am went across to check on his sister and his niece. Then he phoned me and just said, they're dead, and asked me to phone my dad. Sue's brother Fred, letting himself in, had made the horrific discovery of both Susan and Ellen lying dead on the bed. A later post-mortem was to determine that Susan had been strangled before being stabbed multiple times in the neck. Though there was no evidence of rape, she was confirmed to have had apparently consensual sex shortly before her death. Ellen, meanwhile, had been beaten about the head so violently that her teeth had been shattered before being smothered. When Fred had tried in vain to resuscitate his niece, knowing that it was sadly too late for his sister, he had had to remove a scrunched up ball of paper that had been forced into Ellen's mouth first, a loan agreement for the sum of £500. Just try to take that in for a second. What pit of darkness does someone responsible for foulness like that come from? A mother and her three-year-old daughter. It's beyond imagination. Horrendous. By later that evening, at a press conference, the officer leading the subsequent murder inquiry, Detective Superintendent Peter Curry, described the murders as despicable and horrendous, saying, Two people with their lives in front of them have had them cut short in such a tragic and unnecessary way. Indications are that it is someone known to her. It could have been someone she was expecting to see. There hasn't been, on the face of things, a burglary or a robbery. He said Mrs. Peters had a close-knit family and happy home life. Her mother and brother both lived close by and supported her as she cared for Ellen. He added, Her brother, who lives across the street from her, discovered the bodies when he called to babysit Ellen. Both mother and daughter suffered similar multiple injuries, although Mrs. Peters' injuries were by far the worst. She was a quiet woman who appeared to have no enemies, and currently there is little understanding as to why this stabbing took place. She just led a normal life with a little child who was absolutely devoted to her. The home was very clean and presented, and she obviously looked after herself and her child very well. When she wasn't working, she was at home with Ellen most of the time. She did most of her socialising with her brother and his partner. It must have obviously been horrendous for a family member to have found them like this. Initial inquiries had revealed that Susan had been spoken to on the telephone late the previous evening, and neighbours of the mother and daughter had told police they'd clearly heard Ellen's voice in the early hours of the morning although no shouts or screams had been heard. Detective Superintendent Curry continued, We were unsure if the murderer was in the house at the time Ellen could be heard talking. There was no forced entry or sign of burglary, which leads us to believe Mrs. Peters knew her killer well enough to allow them into her home. A black Peugeot mountain bike was also found to have been stolen from the communal hallway of the flats which led police to believe that the killer had used it to flee the scene. Detective Superintendent Curry continued, 
We are therefore appealing for anyone who saw anything between 11pm on Thursday night and 11am on Friday. It may not have been anything suspicious, because she may have let whoever did this in. It may be just a case of someone knocking at the door or walking to the front of the house. We believe it is someone who's known to Susan. We want to piece together background and movements over recent weeks. We know that Susan was spoken to on the phone late on Thursday evening, so the murders took place sometime between 11pm on Thursday and 11am on Friday. As flowers and tributes to the murdered mum and daughter built up at the gate to the Cordendorf property, a statement from Susan and Ellen's shattered family was issued, which read, Our family are devastated by the tragic loss of Sue and Ellen. Sue has always been devoted to our family. She was a quiet, inoffensive person who had a strong personality. Since becoming a mother, her whole life revolved around Ellen, and Sue was at her happiest when she and Ellen were together. Ellen was a beautiful little girl whose personality touched everyone. She gave so much love and was not only Sue's little girl, but also her closest friend. We know of no reason why anyone would have harmed Sue and Ellen in this way. Now everybody who knew both Susan and Ellen shared these sentiments. Samantha Williams, a neighbour of Susan, said, They seemed such lovely people. Susan was very close to her brother and they would be in and out of each other's houses all the time. Ellen was a cute little girl with long blonde hair. She looked like a doll. How anyone could do that to a defenceless baby, I don't know. It's devastating. I just hope they catch the monster. James Davis, the assistant bar manager at Liso Golf Club in Morton, where Susan had worked part-time as a waitress for three years, said, She brought Ellen into work a couple of times, and she was adorable. She thought the world of her little girl and was always playing with her. The last time I spoke to her was on Thursday, the day before she died. She came into work in a very positive mood that day. Sue said she wanted to join the gym again and get fit. She really seemed to be looking forward to the year ahead and didn't seem to be worried about anything and she didn't receive any unusual telephone calls or visits. She was loved by everyone here, not just the staff but also the members who used the club. She had so many friends here and was really well liked. Everyone just can't believe what's happened. Everyone here is totally devastated. The flag on Liso Golf Clubhouse had even been dropped to half-mast as a sign of respect, whilst the club's committee organised a tribute to Susan and Ellen, as well as a collection for her family. Susan's husband Ian, who by accounts had not seen his wife and daughter since the previous Christmas during a period of leave, was said to be being comforted by Susan's devastated family after driving home from his base in Portsmouth. He was, accounts claim, beyond devastated. Other accounts have it that he was not at all close to Susan's family and had remained aloof from them, with them considering him to be a bit of a Walter Mitty type character. But something like this, you would just have to come together and lean on each other to get through the grief and the heartbreak, wouldn't you? Putting aside whatever you thought of that person. That was until four days after the murders. When on Tuesday the 13th of January, Ian Peters was arrested in connection with the murders of his wife and daughter. 
when he'd been visited by Royal Navy regulators, the Naval Police, at 11.50pm on the Friday evening, accompanied by a naval chaplain there to tell Peters that his wife and child were dead, he simply said, I can't believe it, and put his head in his hands, rocking slightly back and forth. But there was just something about this lack of emotion, for there were no tears or outbursts of grief that troubled both the regulators and the chaplain, for they each doubted Peters' sincerity. Though he'd immediately returned to Merseyside on compassionate leave the following day, and though accounts claim he was beyond devastated at the loss of his wife and child, he wasn't beyond devastated enough that just two days later, on the Monday, he was out shopping with friends in Liverpool, chatting about women and football. He also used this time to cancel the standing orders that were payable from his bank account into his wife's, and had even tried to use his wife's cash card to withdraw money from her account, though he had keyed in the wrong PIN number. It's not the picture of a grieving husband, really, is it? As I said then, the day after this, Peters had been arrested. He gave detectives the story that on the previous Thursday, he had finished work for the day and remained in his quarters on the base for the entire evening. Now it did transpire during this interview that Peters was engaged in an extramarital relationship with another girl in Portsmouth, though it's unclear if the girlfriend believed he was single or knew he was married and simply didn't care, for he showed interviewing officers text messages between him and his girlfriend from the Thursday evening in question, where Peters indeed had messaged her that he was in his quarters. However, nothing else could alibi him no eyewitnesses could place him definitively there in quarters on the Thursday, and of course, I could send someone a text message saying I'm in bloody Timbuktu, but it doesn't mean I have to be there, does it? I could say that, but send it from my living room. And it would be entirely possible to travel from Portsmouth to Liverpool and back within an evening via train. They ran fairly regular. It would also explain the lack of any forced entry to the flat, for he would have a key, and it would even go some ways to explain the sexual activity that Susan had had before death, likely consensual. Plus, as I said when discussing Celeste's case earlier on, the prime suspect in crimes such as these is always first and foremost someone close to the victim, like a partner or a spouse. Had Ian Peters done the unthinkable? So, with Peters more ruled in as a suspect than out, but this being merely conjecture at the time, he was released on police bail. He shortly afterwards returned to Portsmouth, although he remained off duties on compassionate grounds. He went back about his business in the weeks that followed. He went back to his part-time job in a pub bar, and even at one point looked at taking a weekend break away in France for him and his girlfriend. Meanwhile. With their suspect firmly in mind, police went about doing what they do. And less than a month after he'd first been arrested, on the morning of Wednesday, February the 11th, 2004, Ian Peters was once again arrested by Merseyside detectives, this time down at his quarters in Fort Blockhouse in Gosport, and was brought back up to Merseyside for questioning. 
Now at first he gave the same story he had the previous month when questioned. He'd not seen Susan or Ellen since December the 28th of the previous year, the last day of his Christmas leave. And the night they'd been killed, he'd been in his quarters, again citing the text messages he'd exchanged with his girlfriend as proof of this. But what Peters could not know was just how much detectives had been looking into him over the previous few weeks. His movements, his phone records, his bank transactions, and of course, CCTV. When bit by bit they put to him that on that Thursday evening, his phone had been registered as being used near the Liverpool area, proven. His bank withdrawal record showed he'd withdrawn more than enough money on the Thursday for the cost of an open train return from Portsmouth to Liverpool and CCTV from London Waterloo and Liverpool Lime Street Station both showed a man boarding and exiting a train on the Thursday evening that if it wasn't Ian Peters, then it was his absolute double. Peters now changed his story. He refused to comment on the evidence put to him piece by piece and instead adapted the I have no memory of that evening line of defence. That old crock of shit. On Thursday, February the 12th, 2004, Ian Peters was charged with the murders of 29-year-old Susan Peters and his three-year-old daughter, Ellen, where the following day, and it really was an unlucky Friday the 13th for him, he stood before Wirral Magistrates, where he was remanded in custody awaiting trial. Nine months later, on Friday, November the 12th, 2004, 27-year-old Ian Joseph Peters appeared in the dock of Liverpool Crown Court, where he admitted the savage killings of his wife and daughter, a complete vault face from his initial denial of them. Peters, who still denied any recollection of the incident, sat with his head bowed as Neil Fluitt QC, prosecuting, told the court how Susan and Ian Peters had begun a relationship in 1999 with their daughter Ellen being born the following year. And at first, the relationship had been fine, the couple had even married in 2001. By Christmas 2002, however, it had begun to sour, with Peters being away and living like a single person, as so many married people in the forces do, they'd begun to live separate lives. Indeed, Susan's family were later to say that Susan was more like a single mother, than a wife. But at the real heart of the couple's problems was money. That month, Ian Peters had made an application for an £8,000 loan, though this seemingly didn't solve any of their problems, because by October of 2003, he'd made another loan application, this time for £500. Just borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, as well as still living as you would do debt-free, isn't a viable solution though, is it? And the couple had argued several times over Peter's inability to budget or to save. It had come to a head over that Christmas, with the marriage effectively having broken down, and Peter's brooding over a wife and child he'd come to see as a millstone that stopped him from going out living it up as carefree as some of his colleagues did. Indeed, he already considered himself partly carefree, as he had long had a girlfriend back down in Portsmouth. When he returned to base on the 28th of December of that year, 
His journey down was filled with resentment at the money he desperately wanted to spend on himself and leisure, going to a wife and daughter that he no longer loved or cared for. So, Mr. Fluitt told the court, a few days into the new year, the scheming mind of Peters hit upon a solution. After finishing work on the 8th of January, Peters told his colleagues he was shattered and was going to bed to sleep. He instead made his way to the railway station, where he caught a train to London Waterloo, and then one further north to Liverpool, where he arrived at Lime Street Station at 10.49pm. During this journey, he sent text messages to his Portsmouth-based girlfriend, giving her the impression that he was resting in his quarters. He then made his way to the flat in New Brighton, where he let himself in, and quite possibly it had been he who Susan had been on the phone to at 11pm, the timings would be about right. And on the surface, yes, it was a surprise visit. It initially went well enough for he and Susan to even have sex. It's quite possible equally that Ellen had woken and excitedly seen her father was home, which would explain her voice being heard in the early hours. But as we know, this was no surprise visit to his family. It was instead a planned massacre of them. At some point in the early hours of the morning, estimated to be about 3.30am as suggested by the later post-mortems, it is assumed an argument over the £500 loan broke out between the two. It's only assumed no raised voices were heard. But what is without question is that Ian Peters went into a violent frenzy. He attacked Susan, strangling her and stabbing her several times in the neck and leaving her in a pool of blood on the bed. It's unclear as to whether Ellen was awake or not throughout this and I don't really want to imagine that poor little girl being awake really, but what's also clear is that Peters then battered and smothered his three-year-old daughter before forcing the £500 loan agreement down her throat with such force that her teeth were broken. Horror beyond belief. Needing to make his way back to Portsmouth, Peters, having cleaned himself up, then made his way back to Liverpool Lime Street Station, possibly making part of the journey on a stolen mountain bike, and at 5.01am, texted his girlfriend in Portsmouth once again, to further cover his tracks, and to now give the impression that he'd just woken up in his quarters. He then caught an early train back down south, and was back in Portsmouth by 9.30am, as he was spotted there at this time by a colleague, he then had lunch with a friend and visited his girlfriend before reporting for duty later that evening. However, he shortly after reporting for duty left work complaining of feeling unwell and returned to his quarters, where at 11.50pm he was visited by Royal Navy regulators and a chaplain who told him his wife and child were dead. Which Peters, of course, already knew. Mr. Fluitt told the court. Peters claimed that the last time he saw his wife and child was on December the 28th. Now this was destroyed by the evidence that had been put before Peters and by a single fingerprint. A print belonging to Peters was found on the wall above the bed in the flat 
Nothing unexpected there, you may think. It was, after all, his marital home. But it didn't explain why it was a blood-stained fingerprint. Get out of that one, Peters. Mr. Fluitt went on. These were cold, calculated and callous killings for which Mr. Peters has shown no remorse. After he was told about their deaths, he went shopping with mates and talked about women and football. These are not the actions of a man grieving the loss of his family. Presiding Mr. Justice Leveson added, The ferocity of the attack does Peters no favours. It does give rise to the possible inference of rage. Then passing two consecutive life sentences on Ian Peters, with a minimum tariff of 27 years to serve before being considered for release, Mr Justice Leveson told him, You have pleaded guilty to, in an uncontrolled and savage way, murdering your wife Susan and your small daughter Ellen, who was some six weeks short of her fourth birthday. The mere utterance of those words reveals a disaster too terrible to contemplate. Not only have you destroyed two human beings of their most precious possession, the right to strive for a full and happy life, you've also damaged irreparably, if not destroyed, the lives of many others who loved and valued them. After Peters's sentencing was passed, Susan's heartbroken mother, Edith Palin, yelled from the public gallery, You should have got more, the bastard. Outside the court, speaking on behalf of her family, Susan's sister Sylvia Palin said in a statement, Sue was a loving and caring mum whose life revolved around her family. Ellen was a beautiful little girl, a chatterbox, and a loving child with an inquisitive nature. Both were murdered by the hands of a person who should have loved and protected them. Our parents have now lost a loving daughter and granddaughter. We've lost a beautiful sister and niece and our children have lost a special auntie and a cousin. We miss them both painfully. Our lives have been devastated by their deaths, and have changed forever. She continued, Nobody has the right to take a life, but to take the lives of your wife and defenceless young daughter in such a planned and calculated way is pure evil. Ian Peters showed no mercy by his actions, no length of time in prison will bring Sue and Ellen back to us, but we feel some small comfort in knowing that Peters has been brought to justice. However, we feel that the 27-year sentence for the loss of two lives is inadequate. Ian has shown no remorse. We feel the guilty plea was done only in an attempt to reduce the sentence. The family then expressed their thanks to the officers of Merseyside Police's major incident team, singling out Detective Superintendent Peter Curry and his deputy, Detective Chief Inspector Colin Lehman, who had led the investigation, for special praise. Detective Superintendent Curry, meanwhile, said after the conclusion of the trial, You've got to draw your own conclusions about what made him do what he did. It became clear that there was a financial aspect to it. Indications are that Peters was away in Portsmouth. He had a girlfriend there, and it may have been that he saw his wife and daughter as a millstone around his neck. But what you can't get away from is his actions afterwards. 
Peter showed no remorse whatsoever and lied all the way through in trying to create a false alibi. Also, as was heard in court, after the deaths he was driving around and going shopping and talking about who was winning the football. They are not the actions of someone grieving the loss of his wife and child. It is hard to accept that anyone would kill his wife and it is beyond belief that he could kill his own three-year-old child. He showed no remorse in court but instead span a web of deceit. If he has remorse, it's for the fact that he's been caught and convicted. I would completely agree there. Susan's sisters were spoken to by the Liverpool Echo newspaper some 18 months after the murders, where it was apparent that the family were still shattered by Susan and Ellen's deaths. What also became clear throughout this interview was the dislike for Peters that the family had had long before the murders. Her sister Diane told the Echo, You can't pick who someone falls in love with. We were never close to him. He had an arrogant attitude and he told lies. Even the Navy in Portsmouth said he was a Walter Mitty character and there were problems from the word go. He was never a proper husband and father to Ellen. It was Sue who saved and paid the bills. She was meticulous about that. Much of the time they lived separate lives. Sue was like a single mum, but she managed well. She was an intelligent, wonderful mum and looked after Ellen so well. Sue's sister Sylvia, meanwhile, told how the family was still haunted by one question. Why? She went on. Why, if he didn't want them, didn't he just walk away and leave? She wouldn't have asked him for anything. She didn't need him. He had no time for Sue and Ellen, but he didn't have the guts to go. But there was no reason for him to kill them. He's shown no remorse for what he's done. Whilst he was on bail, he even tried to book a weekend break to Paris for himself and his girlfriend. It's as though this part of his life was over and he's carrying on with another life. As a family, we've become introverted because this isolates you. If we have anything to celebrate now, we have to go to visit the grave of a child and a 29-year-old woman. Susan's family went on to highly praise the police family liaison officers who had helped them to cope, as well as banging the gong for the Merseyside branch of SAM, Support After Murder and Manslaughter, a fabulous charity that offers exactly what it's named for. It offers a wide range of peer support services to people bereaved by murder and manslaughter, and who had been a light for Susan's family. As I say, it is a fantastic organisation that does offer wonderful support. And if you'd like to know more, or perhaps even want to get involved with it, a link to Sam will be in the episode show notes. So helpful had they been to Susan's family that several of her sisters and her sister-in-law had fundraised for them, raising more than £2,000 for the charity in the months after Susan's death, explained Sylvia. I wanted to put back something of what these people have given us. They've offered us help and support. You need to talk to people who have gone through what you have. I don't know how people coped before they were there, added Diane. One tiny chink of light in a tale of such darkness. 
Also in the Echo interview, however, Sylvia revealed that the family had not spoken to Ian Peters since he'd been arrested, but Sylvia especially had, and most probably still has, no doubt that she would like to meet him one more time, saying, I'd like to come face to face with him, but I wouldn't like to say what I'd do. A sentiment you can understand completely, I'm sure you'll agree. And perhaps one day, she and Susan's family will. For now, however, Ian Peters remains a serving prisoner, having completed almost two-thirds of his minimum tariff of his life sentence. A pair of horrendous tales there, I'm sure you'll agree. Two of the worst I've ever come across. And the monstrous actions of Peter Hall and Ian Peters, where do you even start with them? Although he was found fit to plead at his trial, he admitted everything and offered nothing in the way of defence. It seems to me that Peter Hall did have some aspect of mental illness, for although there are some calculating and measured aspects of the crimes, his changing clothes and showering after each murder, leaving money for the aftercare of his dogs, his actions of that Tuesday surely cannot be that of a totally sane person, can they? This is someone with no reported criminal record or history of mental illness, but I ask you, who totally sane smashes in the skulls of two children with a pickaxe handle, with about an hour in between each, after killing their mother in an orgy of violence involving three methods of murder and even obliterating their pet? Who then goes calmly to the local pub for the evening and hints openly about the crimes he's just committed? who then flees, but either never leaves the local area, or at least returns to it two days later to attempt suicide. It smacks to me really of someone hell-bent on committing such actions, and accepting that he would never get away with them. What I am most surprised about is that it took him as long as it did to commit suicide. And there is more than a touch of irony, coincidence, whatever you want to call it, that he was placed into a cell with Shipman, who of course, himself went on to take his own life also, just over four years after Hall did. Why Hall really committed such heinous actions, we will sadly never know. He offered feeble lies during his police interviews, and the only theory that remains is that so torn up with the possibility of Celeste breaking off their relationship and returning to a husband was he, so consumed with it that he would rather destroy not just her but her family also as if to say to the man he considered his biggest threat ergo the man he despised if i can't have her then no one will even leaving a note saying you're welcome to your family back the actions are nothing short of monstrous and the earth is just that much cleaner and the air purer with hall not on it truly rot and now we come around to Ian Peters, and at least with this one, the motive does become a bit clearer, for it's a financial one. I was in the military around the same time as Peters was, and so, not only do I know the culture of the time in the armed forces, I also know how much you get paid, and it soon goes, because there's no overtime, there are no bonuses, nothing like that. It's well documented that the couple had fallen out over money several times before, and the need for both a £500 loan 
and an £8,000 loan in the months leading up to the murders suggests strongly that one of them was spending well beyond their means. No accounts point to this being Susan Peters at all. She would appear to be the level-headed one, the sensible, devoted mum. So that leaves Ian Peters. Now, far from missing his family, he seems to instead have chosen to adapt himself a new life in Portsmouth, like shedding a skin, which would go some way to explaining why Susan and their daughter had not joined him down there to live in married quarters. For as much as she had the fixed support network in place in her native Merseyside, I can also imagine Peters wouldn't be too anxious to move them down, for that destroys his new life, doesn't it? He'd gotten himself a girlfriend, was having the time of his life with his friends, but a large chunk of his monthly wages was going to a family back home that he callously, immaturely and selfishly came to see as a disposable millstone around his neck. Now, I can't even begin to comprehend the mindset that decides two people you're supposed to love and cherish more than anything are a millstone and instead, rather than split up, perhaps even amicably, as as we've heard, the marriage was almost broken down completely anyway. Instead, the option that comes to mind is to brutally murder the both of them, just to save yourself the money going out of your bank each month. Your wife and your three-year-old daughter, who had such violence inflicted upon her that her teeth were shattered. Who can commit such cold-blooded, calculating, yet monstrous actions, and still even consider themselves in any part human? As I always say with any case of such pure horror, I hope prison time has been exceptionally hard for Ian Peters. I hope that he is nothing short of reviled in there, and I hope that he experiences on a very regular basis the same level of fear that his wife and daughter did in their final moments. He deserves to end his own days knowing nothing but fear. As I draw the tales to a close here though, think not of Hall or Peters, but instead the families that each destroyed in their horrific actions and their loved ones that remain with a loss and heartache that these monsters inflicted upon them. Monsters, I thought, was the most apt word for each of the killers depicted here. I know we have a Monsters of episode each series, but I've chosen different tales for that one when it comes this time around. But each tale I've brought here, I've thought really enforced the adage that not all monsters are make-believe. Ian Peters and Peter Hall prime examples. I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on each of their tales, which you can do so in the Facebook thread that's now up in the show's discussion group, or through anywhere really, any of the show's social media links, in person if you're off to see us in London next month, or even if you're off to CrimeCon Glasgow in September, I'm always happy to gas with you folks wherever. On that note, it's wrap-up time Ian as always now, for the next tales are always on the true crime conveyor belt, and one shall be coming to you very soon, along with that bloody Patreon episode, which I shall square away shortly. With that, I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me and the Mog, stay safe, and goodbye for now. <laughs>